Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Hebrews once again, Hebrews and chapter 6, and it's our intention this morning to look through the first 12 verses together, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. This is arguably one of the more difficult passages in the letter uh, slash sermon of Hebrews to the Hebrews, to the Jewish Christians In fact, it may be the hardest portion of this letter, and indeed may be one of the harder passages even in the New Testament. It has to deal with the topic of apostasy, which is the title for the sermon this morning. It is hard when people reject Christ, who is the only way of salvation, It is difficult when friends, close friends, and family members do not see the truth and the reality of the love and the holiness of God, do not appreciate Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, his life and ascension as we do. Their eyes have not been opened, their hearts have not been opened to the truth of God's word. It hurts. It hurts perhaps even more when they had the same opportunities as we did. They grew up sitting in the same seats as we did. They went to the same Sunday school classes and children's programs and heard the same messages, sang the same songs, and yet now seemingly reject it all. But it's even more serious, I think, than sometimes we believe, and perhaps even more serious than we want to admit So the author of the book of Hebrews, knowing his audience, has left off his further exposition of Christ's high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which he's going to pick up again in chapter 7. And he has stopped his sermon, stopped his letter as it were to say, there's more that I can tell you and more that I'm going to tell you, but I want to make sure that you're properly listening. And so we looked at chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 last time we were together, but here this morning, he wants to warn them, especially those that are considering leaving Christ and going back to Judaism. That is not a light decision. In fact, for some, it is an irreversible one, and so we need to take seriously the warnings of the Word of God. So let us read together then, or I'll read as you follow along, if you would, Hebrews chapter 6 starting to read at verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls in it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end 
so you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of God. Now I do not want to either downplay the warning that is contained here in God's word, but do, nor do I want anyone sitting here listening or listening online to unnecessarily doubt their salvation. The point of this passage is not to cause true believers in God the Father through the Christ, through Christ by the Holy Spirit, to unnecessarily doubt their salvation. It is, however, a very strong warning to those who are thinking about leaving, repudiating Christianity, and following after something else. It is a warning to those who are surrounded by Christianity, who are immersed in Christianity, who sit here week in and week out, who are culturally Christian, who are, as we talked about last week, sort of in the room with other Christians, and yet are not actually true believers in Jesus Christ, and they evidence that by falling away, by rejecting Christ, and in do so doing, settle their non-relationship with God, something that according to our text is irreversible. And we'll talk about that as we move along in just a moment. So I want us all to take this seriously because it is a very serious passage of God's word. But I do not want anyone listening to unnecessarily doubt their salvation, although this is a very good warning for all of us. So where do we begin? We begin this passage with a firm foundation. These are foundational truths of God's word. This is the foundation of the gospel. The author, the pastor, the preacher says these are the things that we need to have secure. Now when he says let's leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, he is not saying, yeah, 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 the gospel, I get that. Now we need to go on to bigger and better things. It's not what he's saying. Do not misunderstand what he's trying to portray. He says not laying again a foundation. So if you can picture as we walk through this a building. A good building starts with a foundation. You have to lay that foundation. You have to be sure of that foundation. You have to trust in that foundation. But if you spend months and months and months and years and years adding more concrete, shifting the footings, agonizing over that foundation, the building's never going to be built. And so what the author of Hebrews, what the preacher is trying to tell us is not accept the gospel and move on to bigger and better things. What he is saying is this, the, these realities must be sure. These realities we must believe. This is the anchor for our souls, the foundation of our faith. If we have doubts here, then we will not build anything on the foundation. This needs to be firm and solid. But once it is, we need to then build that building. We need to move on and, and, and based on those truths, not forgetting those or leaving them off, but based on those truths, we can move forward. All of us have doubts. And those doubts come at different seasons, and those doubts have different strengths depending on the reason for them and the season. 
But if these things are sure, then our security in Christ, our security in the gospel is sure. And our building can withstand the winds and the rains and all the things that come. As Christ would tell us, build your lives on the rock, on him, so that when the storms of life come, the foundation is secure. And so again, do not misread what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's not saying leave off the gospel and go on to bigger and better things. He's saying have your trust in the gospel firm so that it, as it is firm, you then can build further. You can go on to maturity as we talked about last week. What is this foundation? I think in the first place it is justification. Now you mixed in here and the commentators are, are sort of not all over the map but there's, there's some discussion are these Jewish things that the Jewish Christians need to stop doing because now they're Christians? Or are they Christian things that they need to have secure as they grow in their relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit? I think it's more the latter, but you can see some uh, Jewish references here, to be sure. And I think in the first place we have justification. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And so we have repentance from dead works. Coming to the realization no matter what we do, it is never good enough. Coming to the true understanding that we cannot on our own make ourselves good enough for God. We cannot attain perfection by what we do. And so we must go on to have faith towards God. Our only hope is Christ who is perfect for us. Our only hope is Jesus Christ who is perfect. The only perfect human who lived a life of perfection, died a sacrificial death, and raised back to life from the grave triumphantly for us and has ascended to his Father. That is our only hope. And that has to be firm. I remember as a young man... So I was going through junior high. I got saved probably 130 times a day. You know, God, if I didn't pray the right prayer or say the right words or pray it in the right way, or did I really mean it? The author of Hebrews is saying this, this has to be sure. Do we know that regardless of what happens in life, do we know regardless of the doubts that come, the different isms that come our way, do we know that in the midst of chaos, do we know that in the midst of personal struggle and pain and trial, do we know and are we sure that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior? That it is not up to us to save ourselves. He is our only hope, and in him we trust and rest. That's what the author is saying. Then he says of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands. I think the next we have this idea of sanctification. This could be Jewish ritual washings about which Jesus and the Pharisees had many discussions. But I think it's more in a Christian context than the reality of baptism. The initiation rite of Christianity. That physical, tangible, public declaration of our, our loyalty to Jesus Christ. As we stand or sit upright I am identifying with Christ's cross work. And then as we are buried under the water, not as long as Jesus was buried in the ground, thankfully, 
We are saying we are loyal to Christ and we identify publicly with his burial. And as we come back up out of the water, we are saying we publicly identify with Christ's resurrection. This is the beginnings of, or ought to be the beginnings of, our life of obedience to Christ. You can lay hands on individuals for any number of things. You can lay hands on sacrifices, as we learned from Leviticus, as you're about to receive atonement for sin. You can lay hands on people for service. But perhaps what is being talked about here is the laying on of hands with the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is throughout the book of Acts, to be sure. So at the beginning of our Christian life, once we have the justification settled, once we understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior and Christ is the only Savior, then we begin our Christian life and continue on in our Christian life with obedience. And the two markers of that obedience, the two markers at the beginning of our Christian life is the presence of the Holy Spirit and our following through with baptism. And then lastly, we have this idea of glorification, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That we are secure in our realization, our understanding, that because Christ raised to life from the dead, so too we will do that one day. And as all will stand before God in judgment, as the author of Hebrews is going to say later on in his letter slash sermon, that our judgment has already been meted out on Christ. And so we're not standing before God, the holy judge, on our own merits, but we're standing there on the merits of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So our past has been taken care of, our present is secure, and we look forward to the next life. We are not scared of death, at least not as others that have no hope are, but we rejoice to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior upon our passing. These things, the author of Hebrews says, we must have secure. Deep doubts about any of these things means that any building on top is going to be shaky. These must be understood and believed. But notice what he says in verse 3, God's gracious sovereignty, and this we will do, if God permits. This is not something that's on us in the sense that it is all on us to believe and to really, really, I have a lot of faith. I'm just going to really, really have faith. God is the one who works in us. God is the one who has begun a good work in us and will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one who has saved us, is saving us, and will one day fully save us in Glory. God is the one that has started the process, is continuing the process, and will complete the process. God is the one who is at work. Which is why it is so important for us to read his word and, and to be in prayer and amongst one another. To, to, to understand that it is he that works in us. If it is all up to us, it will fail. So the author of Hebrews is saying, this is the groundwork that has been laid and he believes is true of his audience. Because he says, starting in verse uh, 9, we are sure of these things of you. He has great confidence, not in them <laughs> and in their perfection, but in God and God's work in their hearts and lives. But there is a warning that must be given. Because the audience of the author of Hebrews 
is considering, under persecution, abandoning Christ. And so the author goes next then to a stern warning in verses 4 through 8. Do not miss this, if you would, for it is impossible. That cannot be missed. We have in the first place the permanence of true apostasy. This is not a light thing. There are those that believe that these warnings are hypothetical, simply intended to spur true believers on to more obedience. I do not believe, based on the nature of what is written here, that this is merely hypothetical. It appears to me, based on other portions of Scripture, certainly that it is very real. For those who believe that this is true, these are true believers that the author of Hebrews is writing to who can lose their salvation. I would submit to you then, you must also believe that anybody who loses their salvation cannot ever, at some point in the future, regain it. This is not a, I'm in, then I'm out, then I'm out, then I'm back in, then I'm out again, then I'm back in again. That's not what is going on here in this passage. Because the author of Hebrews is saying, someone who experiences the depth and the richness and the fellowship and all the things that are around, surrounding Christianity, if they abandon that, the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible for them to get it back. You cannot miss that. And so I believe what is going on here in this passage is, these are individuals who were close to Christianity. They were swimming in Christian waters. They were gathered in Christian circles. They heard the words, they sang the songs, they may have even prayed the prayers. They were in the group, and yet were never really truly part of the group. It was the group's spirituality. They were around, but they weren't fully in. And when it really came down to it, when their faith was challenged, they rejected Christ. A rejection that the author of Hebrews says is impossible to undo. And our exhibit A would be Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was part of the chosen 12. Judas Iscariot was with Jesus, same as all the rest. He saw Jesus turn water into wine he watched Jesus walk on water. He was there when Jesus grabbed or held Jairus' daughter's hand and brought her back to life from the dead, same as the widow of Nain's son. Judas Iscariot was there when Jesus called forth Lazarus from the grave. Judas Iscariot was there when Jesus fed 5,000 and 4,000 with very little food. Jesus, uh, Judas Iscariot was there and saw it all. We believe by implication that Judas Iscariot was a trusted member of the group. At the very least, he held the money that was given to the group as they went around. And Judas Iscariot repudiated Jesus Christ, rejected him in a way different than Peter. And even though afterwards he tossed the pieces of silver back to the religious leaders, we believe Judas Iscariot is currently in hell. These are serious realities. 
And the author of Hebrews wants us to sit in that seriousness. Now again, he changes from second person in verses 1 through 3 to third person in verses 4 through 8. And then back to second person in verse 9. So he's saying to those that he's writing, he does not necessarily believe this is them, which is another, uh, uh, makes the case in another way that this is not true believers in Jesus Christ, but simply those that are kind of hanging around Christianity. What is then the tragedy of apostasy? This is the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the ages to come. Certainly there are Jewish implications here and Jewish, Jewish examples. You imagine being part of those that left Egypt. You had a front row seat for the ten plagues. You saw God's power, power to the point that even Pharaoh's magicians say, yeah, that's, that's over our heads. That's past our pay grade. You stood on the shores of the Red Sea and watched them part, and you walked across on dry land and then saw God brought the waters back on the armies of Egypt. You walked through the wilderness. You saw God provide time after time after time. And yet, as the author of Hebrews has already alluded to, when it really came down to it, they did not believe. They did not trust. They were not part of those who were the children of God. And they died in the wilderness. And so there are those who hang around church and Christianity. They've seen the truth. They've understood the power of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And Jesus says this in the passage that we read during our liturgy. There are not just two types of soil, there's four. The first type of soil is hard. It's the path upon which everyone walks around the farmer's fields and even perhaps through different ones of the fields. And because of it being well-worn, it's hardened, the seed does not even take root. We understand that scenario. Individuals that make no profession of faith, hardened against the gospel, always have been and seemingly always will be, apart from a work of God's grace, which is true of all of us. And we understand the fourth type of soil. The seed goes into the soil, it germinates, it is watered, and the sun comes down on it, and it brings forth life. But Jesus doesn't say there's only two types of soil. He says there's four. The second type of soil seems to accept the word, seems to accept the truth, seems to accept the gospel. And yet, when life gets difficult, there is rejection. And on the flip side, with the other type of soil, when life goes well, there is rejection. And Jesus says all of the first three types of soil are not followers of him, only the fourth. Notice the problem is not with the seed. 
as our brother Kevin Young has brought out. The seed is the word of God. That's not the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the soil. And we'll get to that in verses 7 and 8 in just a moment. But notice the reality of apostasy in verse 6. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. They have gone from those who are weeping at the cross, who believe in Jesus. They've gone from those who stand in awe of God's power, like the centurion who says, true this was the Son of God. And they have reverted back to those who are in the crowd yelling, crucify him. This is not a light thing. This is not just a passing sort of, yeah, I'm not sure if I believe that anymore. This is a public repudiation of Christ. And they are now going from individuals who seem to be grateful for what Christ has done to individuals who want Christ to be crucified and to stay that way. They crucify Christ afresh and hold him up to contempt. They look upon the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf and they hate it. They mock it, they deny it, they repudiate it. They say, well, good then. And so notice the analogy of apostasy. Land that has drunk rain either produces a crop useful for the sake of those who it is cultivated and receive a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. I think this goes directly to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. Because notice it says, for land that has drunk the rain, but if it, it is worthless and its end is to be burned, it is not the crop, it is the land itself. Some say this passage, well, these are individuals similar to 1 Corinthians 3, who their, maybe their works are wood, hay, and stubble, but they'll, they'll be burned up, but they will be saved. That is not what the author of Hebrews is saying here. It is not the crop produced by the land that is fit to be burned. It is the land itself that is fit to be burned. As in Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, it is not the seed that is the problem. It is the soil, and the soil is the heart of man. That is what is going on here in this passage. And so what is it that we're talking about? I don't know if we will ever know who these individuals are. How much of Christianity do they need to have had prior? How much of a taste of the goodness of God? How much of a share of the Holy Spirit? How much of an understanding of the powers of the age to come is necessary to describe this individual and then on the backside, how far are they repudiating Christ, holding him up to open shame and contempt? What does that look like? I'm not sure that we ever know. We are thankful that the things that are impossible for man are, are possible for God. I think we continue to pray, we continue to share the gospel with all those who need to hear. But it does not take away from the force of the warning that if there's an individual that has been a part of church 
that has participated in Christianity, seemingly a part of things, that if they turn their back on that and certainly openly mock and reject that, according to our text, repentance is not possible. This is what Jesus would refer to as the unpardonable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit. When the Pharisees look at the power of God and they say there's only two sources of power, God and Satan, and they attribute Jesus' miracles to Satan, Jesus says, your hearts are beyond. You have made your decision. I think that's a serious warning. And I think it's one that should be taken seriously. Because these are serious things. So take the blessings of growing up in a Christian home and hearing the blessings of the Christian gospel, being introduced to Jesus Christ. To have all of that and to turn your back on it is an extraordinarily serious thing. So serious that Jesus even says, woe to you, Capernaum and Bethsaida and these cities. This is how serious Jesus says. If the Son of God had been in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented and believed. You had the Son of God in your midst, and you did not repent and believe. Therefore, it will be easier in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. The truth of God's word is not to be taken lightly. And the benefits of God and his word are not things to be easily dismissed. And so the author of Hebrews writes to these Jewish Christians and says, you have had a front row seat by lineage and ethnicity. You have seen the power of God and now you have been given the gospel which you believed. Do not turn away. Do not leave off Jesus. Cling to him. He is superior. He is worth it. Do not treat him with contempt. Do not, out of a heart of frivolity, mock that which is true. Do not join with those in our culture who do the same. You know the truth. You've heard it. You've seen it. Do not reject it lightly. Thirdly then, that was heavy. There is a reassuring encouragement in verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 and 10, we see that our hope is in God alone. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Even though the author feels it necessary to warn those who are contemplating treating Christ lightly, he reassures them to say, God is not unjust. Is not look on the reality that he is at work in your life and to toss that aside. 
God understands your heart. It is God that brings salvation. It is God who is at work in you. And thanks be to him for that. Because it is interesting. Jesus says there are going to be those in the day of judgment that say to him, Lord, Lord. And he is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. What is their case? Their case is based on works. But Lord, all of these things we did. And Jesus says, depart from me. And yet here, the author of Hebrews is also looking at things that they have done and are doing as evidence for their relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit. And so it is true. By your works, you will know them. But what is as equally important as the actions is the heart behind those actions. Not just what are we doing, but why are we doing it? Are we doing it to be seen of others? Are we doing it to earn our way into a relationship with God? Or are we doing it out of the abundance of the love that he has put in us? That we love because he's loved us. We forgive because he's forgiven us. We're kind because he's been kind to us. We are holy because he is holy. This is the difference. And so what is our task? Our task then is to have active faith. He ends where he began in 5.11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So you may not be sluggish. Same word that he uses in 5.11, dull of hearing, sluggish or lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and promise and patience inherit the promises. If this is what we believe, then as he says in 6.1, it is not appropriate to stay as a foundation. I've driven by construction sites some of whom only have the footings. And that's all that ever got built. And that's a tragedy. Nothing was ever built on that foundation. The author of Hebrews says, if you believe, that trust and that belief in a trustworthy God enables you to go deeper into relationship with him as we talked about last time, to be active appliers and faithful followers and skilled servants. That enables you to go deeper into your relationship with him, to push forward into your relationship with him. Not to say, thanks Jesus, that was great, what you did for me, and now I'll take it from here. Because the author of Hebrews says, if we're not moving forward, we are drifting backwards. And that backwards drift is not something to be taken lightly. So what is our response this morning? Do we recognize the seriousness of spiritual laziness? There's never been a time to be spiritually lazy. But the times in which we live is certainly not a time to coast into glory. We know persecution has already come. I know far too many people, even in the last five years, that have lost their jobs or their jobs have been threatened simply because they're followers of Jesus Christ. It's not just coming. It's already here. 
And so when it matters, are the things addressed in 6, 1 to 3, are those things solid? Do you have those things settled? Because your building will be tested. There will be hurricane-style winds. There will be earthquakes. Trials and persecution and things are coming. Is the foundation firm? My prayer, our prayer, is that it is. So that we can have great confidence then that no matter what comes, if we have Jesus, we have all we need and more than we need. Take it all, but give me Jesus. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy, even and especially in dealing with difficult topics. Father, we do not know for certain this side of glory whether or not somebody has apostatized. But apostasy is a very real thing. And it is not just mentioned here in this passage, but mentioned elsewhere and also by your son on more than one occasion. And so, Father, I pray that we take these things seriously. That our prayers increase. We beg you for those who once were a part of us and yet have fallen away. Our hope being that it is not irreversible yet. And yet, Father, for some, some who have seen your goodness and your glory, some who have benefited from and participated in your family, and now openly, deeply, zealously, they reject and hold you to in contempt. Father, that is a very, very eternally serious matter. So may we check ourselves. May we pray, only you can save souls. Only you can hold us fast. So Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.